Hey everybody, this is Johnny and Ivy from Gordon College, and you're listening to the Outcast Podcast, where you'll hear stories of the cross-cultural challenges and joys that international and multicultural students experience while studying in the United States. On Outcast, we invite international and multicultural students to share their background and to help bring understanding to their diverse perspectives on the world. Quentin Cole, or Q, is a senior at Gordon College, majoring in communication arts. Originally named Maksat Aliyev, he was adopted from Almaty, Kazakhstan, when he was nine months old. Since then, he has been exposed to and immersed in a variety of different cultures. From growing up as an Asian in the U.S. to living in Rome, Italy, with an American understanding of culture, Q is grateful to have had numerous intercultural experiences, both in the U.S. and abroad. Q is preparing for a new cross-cultural experience as he plans his move to the South for a new job post-graduation. He looks forward to applying his knowledge of cross-cultural communication and growing in his understanding of both his culture and of others. Thank you, Q, for coming. Yay. Yeah, thanks for Q. having me. Yeah, this we're really awesome. excited. So I have a little icebreaker, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I was trying to do something a little different this time. <laughs> so it's going to be a bit of a guessing game. I'm going to give you three clues on a location, and you have to guess what location it is. Okay. (laughs) You ready? Yeah. All right. It's a small town. Wenham. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going, Ivy. All right. It was once a hot spot for transferring different materials to Pittsburgh. Beaver Falls. What was the third one? Your parents can be found here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I figured you would get it on the Pittsburgh one. Um. <laughs> Q, would you mind briefly explaining your life journey and how you got to Gordon? Yeah. So way back in 2002, I was born in Kazakhstan. And I was born and taken straight from the hospital to the baby house um, that I was adopted from. So I didn't spend any time with my birth mother other than those few hours in the hospital. And I was adopted by my lovely parents, Jeff and Christine, um, when I was nine months old. And we moved from there back to America. We spent a few months in Tennessee, but ultimately where I call home is uh, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, mm. just north of Pittsburgh. So we've lived there since I was two. And beyond the few years that we spent in Rome, we've been there since I moved to college in 2020. Beaver Falls is... A very small town, like you mentioned, and it is very white, with Mm. very little diversity. And any diversity that there is is primarily just diversity of the black American population. So there's a relatively sizable population of black people in downtown Beaver Falls, but Mm -hmm. across all of Beaver Falls and Beaver County in general, you don't see any Asians or Latinos or indigenous peoples. There's very little diversity across all minorities. Mm. Um, And so growing up Asian, it was interesting because I never saw anybody that looked like me. And Mm. if I did, they were all older or they were Korean or like Southeast Chinese. So even then they didn't really look like me. I knew they were Asian, but they were just such a different, they were of such a different cultural background than I was that I wouldn't have even really considered them similar to me in that Mm. sense. But because I grew up in such a white area, my culture was very American. It was very Midwest. I am late to things, just like people from the Midwest <laughs> are. Um, 
like, we do our work, we get it done kind of thing. And then just my understanding of, like, broader culture was just very American. I understood that the steps after high school were college, and then after college is a job, and um, if I didn't go to college, I would go to trade school, and then I would get a job, and that kind of thing. So whenever someone asked me about my culture growing up, I didn't really have an answer because, to me, culture was just, like, America. I didn't have an answer for what my birth culture was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so growing up in elementary school and middle school, I didn't ever really consider that I was that different from my friends because, like, as a kid, you're not really looking at yourself compared to them. You're just looking at yourself as a part of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until, like, first or second grade that I think someone, not in a negative tone, but just pointed out that I had different features than they did. And that was kind of when it first began. I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't look like any of you guys. Mm. Mm. And then in second grade, there was one other Asian girl, and someone mentioned, like, you guys have some similar features kind of thing. Obviously not with that language, because we were in second grade. So I was like, you guys look like siblings. (laughs) 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 Um, But it was true. It was that kind of defining moment of, yeah, like, we do look different. And people were starting to attribute our features as being different and setting Mm. us apart. But so it started at a really young age. Yeah, mm-hmm. it did. But to me, it wasn't anything more than visuals because in terms of my understanding of culture, it wasn't like I was out of sorts culturally. I fit in very well mm-hmm. in the school when it came to understanding and reading culture because that's what I was raised in. And I can go into the time in Italy now if you want, um, but ultimately it was just kind of that growing up in White Beaver Falls and going to high school, and people would say some things that were definitely racist or microaggressions, but because I didn't have any sense of my own culture or my heritage, I didn't really know that they were that offensive Mm -hmm. Um, until I came to college and began kind of exploring my culture and joining Asia and talking with people from Mio, and then with everything with the Stop Asian Hate Movement, that was really when my understanding of my own birth culture began. Mm Mm-hmm. People would, yeah, people would say some pretty terrible things in high school, and mm-hmm. I would either laugh along with them because I didn't really know, like, or understand just how awful it was, mm. like, to be called a cat eater or a dog eater. Like, I didn't understand that that was actually something that was, like, pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I got to college, and I looked back, and I was like, oh, yeah, no, that was really racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no one should have let that slide. And it wasn't even just me letting it slide, but, like, my friends and, like, Teachers would stop it if they overheard it, but rarely did they overhear it. So it was just kind of a matter of social stuff. And you said coming to Gordon kind of helped you look more into that. Could you talk more about that? Yeah. So obviously coming to Gordon in the fall of 2020, we had just come off of the summer when the Black Lives Matter movement was really at its peak. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because of how trends and culture works, as the Black Lives Matter movement started to fade from the front of headlines and social media, the Stop Asian Hate movement was really taking, uh, was really getting its footing. And so as that began end of 2020, early 2021, it was a really confusing time for me because I was treating it the same as I treated the Black Lives Matter movement. Like to me, it was a matter of, okay, my friends are under attack. Like the people that they surround themselves with and look like and embrace as like a culture are under attack. 
And with the Black Lives Matter movement, it was how can I love and how can I support and how can I advocate for black lives um, and black voices. But still, like, I could confidently say, and I will never be able to say that I will ever understand what it is to be black in America, just because I'm not. Mm. And so then when the Stop Asian Hate movement really picked up traction, I was approaching it the same way, and I didn't really realize that until a month or two in. I wasn't treating it as if it was my people. Mm. I was treating it as if it was my friends and their families that were under attack, not really recognizing that I could be a victim of this too and that I had Mm. been a victim of this. And it changed sort of around early 2021 through conversations with friends, but it was basically just this understanding and like the understanding grew very quickly, but I realized like, oh, these people are being attacked because they look like me. Mm. And if I look like them, that means I could be attacked. And like with the shooting in Atlanta and different attacks in California and that kind of thing, it was like, oh, like, I think I do need to be worried about this. Like, not just for my friends, but for my own safety. Mm. I'm fortunate that I'm a taller, bigger man, so I'm not necessarily going to be someone's first target for, like, a physical attack. Mm. But in terms of verbal harassment and racist remarks and that kind of thing, like, anyone can be subject to that. Mm. Um And so, yeah, like, having a culture of more Asian students at Gordon, both international students and Asian Americans, primarily my Asian American friends, I realized, like, oh, these are pretty terrible things that are happening and can happen to me, not just these are terrible things and I need to help support my friends. Like, it's okay for me to take the weight of this and, like, grieve this and mourn this and process this Mm -hmm. instead of simply just supporting my friends who are going through this. And so that spring semester, the Asia Club here had a Zoom event, and I was not a part of it. I wasn't attending, um, but the Zoom was hacked, and they, they were basically the, the victims of a racial targeted attack. Um, wow. wow. Yeah, it's not talked about that much because people just kind of like to forget about it, unfortunately. Mm. But yeah, no, the Zoom, the Zoom was hacked, and they were able to shut it down, but It took, like, 30 seconds or so, and there was, like, very racist sexual images and videos and things that were, like, uh, over-sexualizing Asian people and that kind of thing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This was in 2020? Uh Uh-huh, 2021. Spring 2021, like, April. Um, Mm. And so Carissa and I were not at the event, and so we weren't necessarily as, like, shell-shocked by it. And so that was kind of the first time that I ever really took a physical stand myself to do something about it. And Carissa and I planned an event called Our Stories, Our Strength, and that was really what began my personal advocacy for myself as an Asian person Mm. and what my story was. And I gave a short speech at that event, basically just explaining, like, what it was to be adopted and Asian and... Mm. Kind of this conversation, but just the very early beginnings of it, and I didn't Mm. really understand the depth of it because we were just in the middle of everything that was happening. Mm. So you really found your own sense of identity while being here at Gordon? Yeah, I would say so. Just because I didn't have a sense of what Asian identity was Mm -hmm. in high school because there was no other circles of, like, Asian identity. There wasn't, like, Asian festivals or Lunar New Year celebrations happening. So I had no concept of what it meant to be Asian in America beyond just the fact that we happened to be Asian in America. Not mm-hmm. that like we celebrated anything or did anything special. Right. Until coming to Gordon and realizing like, 
oh, like, there are people and families that, like, go all out for Lunar New Year and, mm. like, truly lean into and celebrate, like, every facet of their culture. So, I mean, yeah, it was it was truly just, like, immersion into even just a small puddle of what it looked like to be an Asian in an Asian circle. Thanks for sharing, yeah. Yeah. Is there still something that you don't understand about Kazakhstan culture in general? Or is a lot of your knowledge general Asian culture? Yeah, I would say most of my knowledge is more general Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Kazakh culture is hard to break up, at least in my mind, because there's the modern-day Kazakh culture and the uh, Soviet-day Kazakh culture. Uh-huh. So, like, whenever people are like, oh, where are you from? And I say, oh, Kazakhstan. And they're like, oh, like, I've heard of that, but, like, I don't know, like, it's not in history really that much yeah. uh, because it's in history as the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so in modern-day Kazakh history, people don't really know it because they, like, shoot a bunch of rockets into space. Mm-hmm. Like, that's... They, they are very heavy into, like, space exploration, which is cool. Oh, that's awesome. But... That's about all I really know. Hmm. Um, because as its own individual country, it is young since it's a post-Soviet country. Right. So mm-hmm. specifically Kazakh culture is something that's still, I would say, is probably still being identified. And you talked about how coming to Gordon really helped you ask certain questions about your identity. But you also mentioned that you lived in Italy right before you came to Gordon. So could you talk more about that experience and how that influenced your perspective? Yeah, so... My dad is a professor of history at Geneva College, another Christian college in the CCCU. And one of his, not like assignments, but he, he took on the role of study abroad professor for two years. Um, or for, I should say, for four semesters. We lived there for about two and a half years. But for Geneva College's uh, Rome program, study abroad in Rome program. Mm-hmm. So we lived there when I was entering the summer before my sixth grade until the summer following my seventh grade year. Mm-hmm. And so that's like prime development time for kids. Like you are starting to gain an understanding of your own consciousness and opinions and beliefs. And you're figuring out like what you like to read, what you like to listen to, how you like to operate if you're a morning or a night person, like things that ultimately have an impact on the rest of your life. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So a super formative time to be immersed into a different culture. And I should say it wasn't like a total immersion. I was homeschooled um, when I was there, so I was still learning an American-based curriculum just because I did not learn enough Italian to be immersed (laughs) into the schools. I learned enough that I could, like, I'm still conversational, I'd say. That's so cool. Um, Yeah, I I passed the, like, language requirement test at Gordon, so I didn't have to take a language. (laughs) (laughs) But by no means enough to be learning the language and also learning subjects in that language. So I was homeschooled. And we lived on the property that the college was renting, basically. So mm-hmm. I was living with Americans, living with students. My basic day-to-day things were not in an Italian culture until you stepped outside of that building, and then everything was. So mm. everything we did relied on public transportation, which if you know anything about Italian public transportation <laughs> is not necessarily the best thing to rely on <laughs> just because of the amount of strikes that they have. Um, <laughs> But, like, we would walk to the grocery store and, like, Italian culture with change and, like, change at the grocery store anywhere um, and how Italians are very particular about having exact change and stuff like that. Those are the things that we learned. Um, We learned what was appropriate or not, like, on the buses or the subways. Like, you don't really talk super loud, but 
you also there's also the general respect for the elderly and the pregnant and mm-hmm. as a younger boy I was often one of the first to be expected to give up my seat mm-hmm. sort of thing. So me being a selfish little middle schooler was like, but I got the window seat. I was here first. And it's like, well, she's <laughs> over 60, so she should sit. I'm like, she looks like she could run a marathon. She's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so just kind of stuff like that. And then truly just like my exposure to the world happened when we lived in Italy. So we went to a church called St. Paul's within the walls, Rome. So within the old walls, because St. Paul's outside the walls is a very famous Catholic church. But St. Paul's within the walls was an Anglican church that we attended the whole time we were in Rome. And it was, I would consider it an international church. So none of the services were in Italian. Mm. They had two services on Sundays, one in English and one in Spanish. Oh, wow. And then sometimes, I think it was like quarterly, so maybe four times a year, we would do like one joint service in English and Spanish with a lunch afterwards. So, I mean, even just at that level, like uh, worshiping alongside a different culture was something I hadn't done before. Mm. But something that was really cool that our church did that we really poured into um, was the refugee center that they had in the basement of their building. So Italy being such a prominent uh, boot in the Mediterranean Sea (laughs) is often the first place that a lot of North African migrants will land or end up um, mm-hmm. if their boat doesn't get captured kind of thing and mm-hmm. sent to Malta. And so the homeless and migrant population in Rome is massive. And even just having like that space at our church to hand out toothbrush and toothpaste and like a pair of socks or a hat, like anything people donated, we would be giving away. For some, it was easier for them to get papers and get a job, and they were able to get on their feet a little quicker. Some weren't. Some we would see every day for, like, the full two years that we were there. And that was kind of when I first realized just how broken the world was Mm. beyond my small Beaver Falls bubble. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, to me, brokenness was like, oh, like, my friend's parents are divorced. Mm. And that was all I really knew of, like, a situation where someone wasn't show, being shown the love that they deserved. Right. Um, but then we got to Italy, and like we were in the refugee center, and I heard stories that, as a sixth grader, I think it's good that I was exposed to. Some of them were a lot, and I'm glad my parents exposed me to them. But I mean, I got I kind of got hit by the world with like a truck, just yeah. in terms of going from oh, like divorced parents to like oh, super aggressive political persecution, murder, like having to flee your country because everything has been burned and taken from you kind of thing. Mm. You got to experience it firsthand. Yeah. Um, Two uh, refugees that we got really close with, Maiga and Adama, um, had both come from Mali. And Maiga's story is one that's very powerful. And, I mean, it could take up a whole podcast. (laughs) He lived in Mali, and he watched his father be beat to death. Um, in front of him and so he and his brother fled to the northern coast and they were on a boat for I think it was at least 14 days with no food or water and the boat was like way too overcrowded and through a number of mishaps and the boat being captured and taken to Malta and him escaping and it's a very long story but he ended up in Rome and the first night that he was there everything that he owned was stolen from him because that's just what happens um you're sleeping on the street overnight, and if you want to keep your stuff, you don't sleep. But if you want to sleep, you risk that. And so hearing his story was really the first time that I was like, oh, okay, yeah. 
the world is a terrible place. And, like, <laughs> people's understanding of the world and of culture is very different from what I've known and what I've grown up to know. And that was what I would say is the first time I've ever had a truly, like, cross-cultural experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and hearing such, an, like, an aggressive cross-cultural story. And I'm thankful to say that now, like, Micah has a job and is getting on his feet. And Adama, um, the other refugee that we were friends with, we helped teach him English. Um, and now he's living in France. So you see the fruits of the refugee center there, but it still is just a very difficult space, like, as a middle schooler to be in. Right. And so coming back to my small Beaver Falls, having experienced all of that was very difficult. And I was really looking forward to getting to college and meeting people that had had experiences like me to talk about them. Because mm. nobody back home, like, knew how to talk about it. It's not that they didn't want to, they just didn't know how to. Like, mm-hmm. something in class would come up about, like, political persecution or something, and no one in the class would be able to answer, but I would be like, basically having a one-on-one conversation with the teacher while everyone else watched because mm-hmm. I understood it and I knew how to communicate it and they just didn't. Right. And so it was exci- like I was excited to come to college, not necessarily expecting to discover my own heritage and identity like mm-hmm. within my race, but just to have conversations about race and diversity and culture. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's special. Is yeah. Have you seen kind of a change in Beaver Falls since you left about, like, diversity, cross-cultural competency? Has there been any change about this, or is it still relatively stagnant? It's still pretty stagnant. So, like I said, like, Beaver Falls is pretty much, I think it's like 90% white, and then any diversity is primarily black. So when people understand diversity, they don't actually understand diversity. They just understand that there are white people and black people Mm. and a couple other people kind of sprinkled in between. And so in terms of the conversation between white and black Americans, there's been some movement. We've had a number of black female politicians run for like pretty powerful, I mean, within Beaver Falls standards. We've had people (laughs) run for mayor. We've had people run for positions where there can be change. And there's a strong core group of people that are slowly doing work just to make Beaver Falls safer. Because, like, as much as diversity is something we want to tackle in Beaver Falls, like, the drug problem is probably something we should tackle first, honestly. Mm. But in terms of any movement towards understanding and embracing multiple minorities and cultures, that hasn't really gone anywhere. Like, in second grade at my school, we celebrated Indian Day, where we set up a teepee, and we all (laughs) dressed up in, like, uh, undershirts that we had, like, dyed and, like, drawn on, and it was called Indian Day. And I'm pretty sure they still do that. Oh, no. Mm. So it's like, come on, guys. (laughs) Like, we're past this. We should be. If we're not, there's a problem, which clearly there is. Do you think it's just hard for them to see past what they're doing because it is kind of a an isolated community? Yeah. I mean, like, with the Indian Day thing, it's like, in their minds, it's just education. Mm. It's not appropriation. And it's like, you can do education without appropriation, and you can do cross-cultural education without appropriation. Mm-hmm. Mm. But they just don't understand that. I want to talk a little bit more about the fact that you are adopted and what that means for you and your story. Is there any challenge that adopted children face that you think is, like, universal? And adding on to that, is there a challenge that you face that about being an adopted children that you think is very unique to you and your story Mm -hmm. and your experience? Yeah. 
I guess I'll just start by saying that there there are differences just in the experiences of adoptees and transracial adoptees. Mm. So, like, a white person adopted by white people in America is going to have less... I guess I shouldn't speak on behalf of them, but I would assume that there would be less internal wrestling and conversations there just because, yeah, they might look like their parents, actually, and they're coming from a culture and entering into the same culture. Um, But transracial adoptees will always kind of wrestle with this difference. Like, people have very ignorantly said, because they don't know, they've said, like, oh, you look so much like your dad. And I'm like, where? He's a bald white man. (laughs) Respectfully. Dad, if you listen to this, I love you and I'm sorry. It's actually his birthday today. (laughs) (laughs) Not me hating on him on his birthday. Um, But people will be like, you look like your dad. And I'm like, honey, where? (laughs) Like, I don't. And then they pull the old, like, well, when you live with someone long enough. And it's like, no. I am Asian with melanin, dark hair, and, like, strongly Mongolian and Kazakh features. Mm. And he is a white man Mm. with none of those features. So don't even try. But basically, like, that story was to say that, like, I will never look like my parents. And it almost kind of rubs in the fact that I was adopted more. Mm. Um, just because you see families where the kids look like the parents and, like, you he- always hear, like, oh, like, he has her eyes and, like, oh, well, he has your nose and that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, sure, like, I guess. Uh, but I'm never going to hear that because I don't have any features that look like my parents. Mm. And so I think that that would be the universal struggle of just, like, Constantly wrestling with the fact that, like, you are called family, but you never look like family. Mm. Um, And some people don't really have a problem with that. They're able to brush that off really easily. Some people aren't. I'd say I kind of fall in the middle. Like, there are some days where I'm like, well, yeah, what does it matter? Like, we are family. And then there's some days where it's like, yeah, I really don't look like you. I don't share the same genetics. Like, I don't share your DNA kind of thing. Like, Mm. It's the same way, like, I am just as genetically related to them as I am to you guys, kind of thing. It's just, the difference is the legal responsibility and the commitment that they've made to me and that I've made to them, basically. Which, obviously, that goes a long way. But, I'd say that is the universal struggle of transracial adoptees. It's just, like, you won't look like your parents, and most transracial adoptees try or don't try, but most don't come in contact with their birth parents. Mostly just because international adoption is difficult to right. do that with. So you just kind of are always living in wonder of like, well, I wonder what my parents looked like. Mm. I wonder if I have siblings, like if I look like them kind of thing. Oh, wow. I guess what's specific to me, or at least like a select few of us, is that like I am an Asian adoptee by a white family, but what's difficult sometimes for me to kind of understand is like, well, what does this look like in heaven necessarily? Mm. Um, and I'm sure like other Christian transracial adoptees wrestle with this. Um, and I don't wrestle with it like a ton. It's just something that kind of pops up in my mind one day. Mm-hmm. of like, like, we're not going to forget people in heaven. Like we'll recognize people in heaven. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Like, if for some reason my birth parents made it to heaven, like, it would be really cool to see them. And, like, would I recognize them as family instantly? Mm. Um, Is that something that, like, in the coming of the new heavens and new earth would be made new, like, my understanding of who they are? Mm. And would that take away any part of my adopted parents and our relationship as a family kind of thing? 
So, I mean, my the answer I just tell myself to, like, not worry about it is, like, no. Like, if my birth parents are there, they will be my family, and my parents will be my family kind of thing. Mm. Because we will all be in family right. with Christ. Mm. But I do think about that sometime. Like, either on earth or in heaven, like, what would I say to them sort of thing? And that's something any adopted kid would think. Like, what, what would I say to my birth mom kind of mm. thing? But as a Christian in the context of eternity, it's something that you think about a little differently. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Is there any advice that you would give to parents who want to adopt kids that do not look like them ethnically? How do you think they should go about educating themselves before going into this commitment? Yeah. Um, And I guess I'll just preface by saying that my parents did not do a bad job. Like, my parents raised me well. And I think it was more the circumstances of where we were living that mm. had an impact on my understanding of culture. Oh, interesting. Not necessarily my parents. Like, we had we had aspects of Kazakh culture, like, around the house kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, art and, like, shoes and that kind of thing. Oh, cool. Uh, but to me, it was much more like, oh, yeah, those are things from my country kind of thing. Mm. But, like, I didn't <laughs> understand it that much. I was like, oh, right, cool. Right. But I think, ultimately, just learning how to balance cultures because you don't want to just throw away their birth culture. Mm-hmm. But, like, there is a value in them understanding American culture, too. Like, if you're going to be bringing home a child to America, there, there is a value to that. I think my parents did the right thing, necessar- like, necessarily, of not telling me I was adopted at one age, but raising me saying I was adopted. Like, I don't remember being told that I was adopted. It's just something I've always kind of known. Um, and I think that is a smart thing to do because it never made me feel like now we're going to tell you that you are not ours kind of thing, but we're going to raise you like understanding the circumstances and not treating you any differently kind of thing. Cause it was never like a snap in my brain that said like, Oh, well I'm adopted. Like what is, what does that look like? Like the relationship never changed. Hmm. And then just like the little things like I, guess I would say I wish my parents had celebrated or, like, looked into celebrating Lunar New Year a little bit more. Mm. Like, and that wasn't something I ever considered. And, like, we would eat Asian food every now and then, but it was, like, super Americanized Asian food. Mm. <laughs> um, honestly, if I could give, like, I mean, this is, like, like, an ideal situation for everyone, but if you're adopting someone, say, from South Korea and moving home to North Carolina or something, like, be intentional about trying to find South Koreans in North Carolina and mm. ask them to come over and, like, make food and just engage in conversation. Because I think if I had had someone who was Kazakh, which that's harder because, like, there's not as many Kazakh adoptees. Um, but I think if I had had, like, a Kazakh couple come over growing up and, like, make traditional food and talk about what it was like when they were there, mm. I would have had a better understanding of my heritage and felt mm. a lot more pride in it than just kind of ignorance. Mm. And talking about all the various experiences that you've had, how do you see yourself in relationship to the term third culture kid? Do you think you fit into that term? Do you identify with that? Why or why not? Yeah, sometimes I do, sometimes Mm. I don't. I think I would say living in Italy was when I primarily understood, or felt like, I fell under the label of third culture kid. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of the traditional understanding of being a third culture kid. Like, I was an American culturally understanding person living in an Italian culture mm-hmm. in that way. 
But I guess you could argue that, like, because I'm Asian, then, like, I'm a third-culture kid within America. But I don't necessarily see it that way. To me, it's more I am just culturally diverse. Um, (laughs) Like, I wouldn't say ever that I am a... American living in Asian culture or an Asian living in American culture, but I am a person that has two cultures of both Asian and American. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the little Italian portion that just kind of hangs out. <laughs> <laughs> just throw it in. Just there. like kind of <laughs> hangs out. Yeah. Um, mm. So I guess like I wouldn't necessarily, like I would never introduce myself as a third culture kid. Okay. But if I see someone or hear from someone else who's a third culture kid, I can talk to them and know that like we will have had shared experiences mm-hmm. and shared understandings of cross-cultural experiences. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And what would you say is one thing you've learned from your cultural heritage that you employ today, that you use today? Yeah, I think, and this is more like, it's honestly more like Chinese culture but and like southeast asian culture but the reverence for your ancestors is something that is highly stressed Mm. um, in chinese culture and i don't know if it's as stressed in kazakh culture but it has made me think about who my ancestors are Mm. and not necessarily just my adoptive family ancestors like my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother kind of thing, but, like, my birth ancestors. Like, who is my birth grandmother and grandfather and that mm. kind of thing? And, like, I can always... I mean, I, every like I said, every adoptee will kind of have this wrestling of, like, why did I get put up for adoption kind of thing? But ultimately, there is, like, a level of thanks for just people being in that person's life and helping support them and guide them to having me. Um, And on the flip side, like, people that raised my parents well to know that, like, to know how to adopt, like, an Asian child and raise them. Mm. And I'm excited to see how, if if I ever have kids kind of thing, like, how I talk about my grandparents to them and what that'll look like and Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. ancestors and elders and that recognition. Thank you so much, thank Q, you for so coming. Much. And we really enjoyed your story. And thank you for just being vulnerable and, and sharing what you're wrestling with and all the things you've learned about your culture and are still learning, which is exciting. So thank you. Yeah, thanks yeah. for inviting me. This was really fun. Thank you for you know being on here. It was <laughs> awesome. So we do have a question for the audience. What is one thing you can learn from Q's story as an adopted child? How will you use that information to help others third culture kids and beyond in your community feel welcomed thank you so much q oh also happy birthday q's dad thank you for q's happy birthday. awesome happy birthday, <laughs> happy birthday Jeff. thank you so much for listening and as always shalom, shalom. thank you so much for listening to outcast we hope you've enjoyed this conversation if you would like to help to support this podcast please share it with your friends and family and your social media. Outcast is now streaming at all major podcast platforms. You can also follow us on our Instagram at ISO underscore Outcast. Thanks for listening.